Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. We Americans are obsessed with work. We want meaning in our work. We want our work to align perfectly with our values. It's a badge of honor to tell people how busy we are, and one of the nicest things you can say about someone is that they're a hard worker. But what if we have it all wrong? What if our relationship to work is dysfunctional, and maybe even demonic? My guest today is John Malesic, who has written extensively about work and burnout for publications like The New Republic and America Magazine. He's currently writing a book on the topic. Earlier in the 2000s, John had his dream job as a college theology professor, but the reality of the work was sapping his energy and his spirit until he had to walk away. Since that big decision, John has devoted much of his professional life to studying Americans' relationship to work, why it's broken, and how we might be able to fix it. We talk about John's research, including the story of how a Benedictine monastery in New Mexico that ran a successful web design business in the 90s just shut it down because it was interfering with their life of communal prayer. We also hit on the temptation for folks in Jesuit circles to misuse the popular Ignatian term, magis. Thanks for joining us. Well, John Malesic, thanks so much for joining us on AMDG. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks for having me here, Mike. So could you just maybe start by telling us a little bit uh, about yourself and what you're up to these days? Yeah, uh, I am currently uh, kind of a, a combination uh, writer, teacher, speaker, um, living in Dallas, Texas. Uh, formerly, um, I was a theology professor at a small Catholic college in Pennsylvania. Um, I think we'll probably have an opportunity to talk more about why I'm not doing that anymore. And in the past, I've also been a sushi chef and a parking lot attendant. Um, and now I, I don't really have a normal job. Um, and I'm pretty happy about that, in fact. So. <laughs> You've done a lot of writing about that, about work, jobs, burnout, uh, including talking about your own personal story, uh, having been that theology professor, as you mentioned. I know you're working on a book right now about work and burnout, um, though we could say it's not coming out anytime soon necessarily, still on the process of, of writing that. Uh, but why did that topic work, burnout, why did that become such a big topic of interest for you? Yeah. Um, so while I was a theology professor, uh, I started to get really interested in the theology of work. Uh, I developed a class on the theology of work and um, was doing a research project on the American attitude to work and how it connected with Christian theology and spirituality. And I, the, the line of thinking I was going down was that our approach to work is generally theologically pretty bad. Um, I think that our, our approach to work is often uh, too intense, too obsessive. And I was trying to think of ways to articulate uh, a, a more, uh, humane uh, work ethic. Um, and after studying and writing about that for a few years, I kind of became what I was studying. Um, I had thrown myself into my work uh, and I, I myself had a very intense, uh, unhealthy work ethic. 
And I became a burned out worker who valued himself mainly by his productivity. Um, uh, you know, my, my scholarly productivity or um, how I was doing in the classroom or how many committees I was on or how many things I could do at the college. And I realized my, you know, my work was actively getting in the way of my human flourishing. Um, this is what I was arguing in my research and it is also what I was living in my life. Um, and so I, I experienced burnout. Um, you know, teaching theology was for a long time my dream job. Uh, and, you know, against some odds, I, I got a job, a tenure track job. Uh, and, you know, there was some early stress in the job, but um, I earned tenure. And academics, I think, often imagine that earning tenure or in other fields, you know, earning that that big promotion is going to fulfill you and, and everything's going to be great after that. Um, in my experience, things got a lot worse. Um, the stress became much greater. Uh, I became very quick to anger. I was constantly exhausted and my productivity diminished. At some point, uh, I took a leave of an unpaid leave of absence from the college just to get away and, and reset. And I came back and absolutely nothing had changed. Um, and in that time, um, my wife, who is also an academic, got a job offer at a university here in Dallas. And that was my way out. I, uh, she got her job offer and I sent in my resignation. Um, and it was soon after I quit that I began to think about, well, what had happened to me? Um, I didn't have the word burnout available to me at first, but I discovered the word burnout. And in trying to understand my own experience more, I became fascinated by this topic. Um, and one thing that I learned is that burnout is very widely discussed in our culture and very poorly understood. Um, burnout is a term that gets tossed around a lot you just you know you read it in um you could read in a dozen kind of news stories a day if you're looking for them and so i saw an opportunity uh to bring together my own experience with burnout my research on the meaning and value of work um and my interest in writing across disciplines and genres and so i at some point decided that this was going to be what I would work on in my post-academic career. I want to talk a little bit about burnout again, as you mentioned, something that we throw around a lot. I had come in from a ministry world, you know, working from the church in which people said that a lot, often connected to like maybe this, this feeling that you had to say yes to everything. So as you got to learn more about what that actually means beyond like the, the headline or the, you know, the time you could see it quoted, what, what did you learn about what like kind of lies at the root of burnout and what's going on with burnout? Yeah. I mean, the leading uh, psychologists who study burnout and the leading um, researcher is named Christina Maslach. Uh, she has studied burnout her entire career uh, since the 1970s. Uh, and she defines burnout as a syndrome with three dimensions, uh, exhaustion, 
cynicism or what's sometimes called depersonalization, that idea of treating your students or clients or customers or patients as less than fully human. Uh, and finally, a sense of inefficacy, the sense that your work is not accomplishing anything. And uh, so those are the three components of burnout um, in the, the psychological literature. And what I have learned from studying it is that the burnout is this, it, it occurs in this gap between the ideals you have for your work and the reality of your job. And if those two things are in alignment, if you, if your ideals and reality match up, then, you know, you're probably doing great at your job. You're probably performing well and you're probably enjoying it uh, and contributing to real good. But when those things get out of alignment, then your ideals and your reality drift further and further apart. And you're still trying to hang on to both of them and you stretch further and further and that that hurts and that uh, makes you less effective. And to cope with that, you may end up letting go in, in a sense, letting go of your ideals, uh, letting go of the reality or, or perhaps being uh, kind of stretched so thin that you snap. That's my model of burnout. And I think that that explains my own experience pretty well. And it also uh, coheres. Uh, it's my, my attempt to, to bring my experience and my research together in, in kind of a single image. Well, again, and you were doing job that connected to your values in, in a big way, right? You were teaching, you were teaching theology at a Catholic college, a place that would have mission kind of at the center Again, I talked about coming out of a ministry background where you hear burnout all the time. People who get into work for their for their values and then maybe see the reality again as not quite matching up, kind of as the way you describe. Um, why is it? Do you think that there are these places that would put mission and these these values of balance and uh, the importance of again living your vocation at the center, but then be these these like petri dishes of burnout? Yeah, I, I well, in, if you look at the history of when burnout was first discovered, so to speak, uh, in the 1970s, Maslach and other researchers were focused on people in uh, people who were in, in human services, so social workers, teachers, uh, police and corrections officers, so people who often had a sense of mission, but who were dealing with people uh, within institutions every day. And I think that the, the trouble is that, for one thing, those jobs are really hard. Um, it's, you know, doing a, you giving human beings the attention that they deserve uh, when you're a teacher or you're a nurse or uh, you are a, a social worker is just exhausting. Um, it's, it's hard work. Um, and the amount of need is infinite. Um, there's always the, there's always this nagging sense that you could be doing a better job. Um, and I think additionally, that work is often done in institutions where, you know, you're not just sort of set loose at the beginning of the day to say, go fulfill the mission, you know, go live your vocation. Um, you have forms to fill out. You have bureaucracy to wade through. You have 
competing pressures on the institution. You have financial pressures. Um, you have, you know, unequal distribution of labor. I mean, it kind of goes on and on. Um, so, yeah, burnout is a a fact of institutional life uh, because in order to live out that mission, you need structures that are, are often have scarce resources and you yourself have scarce resources to meet potentially infinite need. You've done a lot of writing kind of, I think, evaluating and kind of taking aim at some maybe unspoken values and assumptions about like work ethic, especially in the United States, like how we approach our work and the kind of level of obsession we have with it. So just from, from your view and your research, what is the state of American work today? What are some of those values that, that we have connected to work that might not be so healthy? Yeah, I think that the biggest uh, problematic value is the simple belief that work just is good. Uh, that work is always good, that any kind of work is good, and that more work is better. You can see it in our political rhetoric where politicians, the one thing that they all promise is jobs. You know, jobs will save us. Jobs will be uh, the path to all good, basically, and, and the good life. A little um, deeper than that, uh, we believe that work holds a lot of promise for us. In fact, I, I would say that the American work ethic is a promise. And it's a promise that if you work diligently at your job, you will not only earn a salary, but you will earn dignity. You will earn character. And you will even earn purpose. You will be fulfilled in your work. Uh, and I think that those things are true to a degree, but they aren't so true and they're not true consistently enough for that promise to really be valid. Um, again, polit not, you know, politicians and um, clergy and parents, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, authority figures in our society like to say, you know, work is the path to dignity. Um, there's dignity in work. But let's, well, let's look at the work that people actually do. Um, is there dignity in laboring for eight or 10 or 12 hours a day and not having uh, the opportunity to go to the bathroom, for instance? Is there dignity in workers being pressured uh, to meet ever higher production quotas? Um, is there dignity in workplaces uh, that have a lot of sexual harassment or uh, racial discrimination? Um, and so the, there's an example of a, a, a big gap between our ideals and our reality. We say that work is a source of dignity. The reality is that it's often undignified and degrading uh, and that gap causes, I think, a, a great deal of damage to people, and burnout is one kind of damage. You mentioned earlier that a lot of your, your work started with uh, thinking about kind of 
Catholic teaching around labor. And there is like a real big emphasis on work, you know, the chance that we can be co-creators with God and, and special protections for workers have kind of their own category in the, the themes of Catholic social teaching, the dignity of work and rights of workers, one of the, the seven big ones that the, the U.S. bishops uh, lay out. So how for, for you then kind of as you were exploring, you know, church teaching on labor and then the reality that you kind of square those things? Yeah, well, I think that I think the church teaching on labor is is great. I think that it's uh, it's extremely humane. Um, it recognizes that labor is a practical necessity in our lives, and you know, it links that to uh, the fall of Adam and Eve. Um, we shouldn't expect labor to be easy, exactly. Um, but you know, I take a lot of inspiration from uh, Leo the Thirteenth's eighteen ninety one encyclical Rerum Novarum. Um, you read the first few paragraphs of that encyclical, and it's clear that Leo is worried about communism. He take he he calls socialists, I think, crafty agitators. Uh, he defends the right to private property. Um, and then he goes into this section about the the mutual obligations of capital and labor to each other. And the list of obligations that workers have to their bosses is pretty limited. Um, then the list of obligations that uh, capital has to labor or, or um, that bosses have to their employees is much greater. Uh, and those obligations, for instance, that workers be paid a living wage, um, that workers have time to, uh, you know, to, to worship and, and that they have time off to rest. Um, you know, those, those are all rooted in this basic concept of human dignity that even before you, and, and I think John Paul II articulated this even more fully than uh, than Leo did, but the idea is that sure, there's dignity in work, but there's dignity in work because the worker already has dignity before he or she ever goes to work. Um, a a you know child who has never worked a day in their life has infinite dignity. Um, they don't need to go to work to have dignity. In fact, it's the obligation of workplaces and uh, colleagues and employers to create working conditions that measure up to that dignity. One of my favorite things you, you've written is kind of looking at, well, in a very practical way, the, the bringing together of religion and work by uh, researching and really going to visit uh, these Benedictines out in, in New Mexico. Uh, who for a time were in the early days of the internet were running this like very successful business like designing web pages, writing the internet really. Uh, and then they just stopped. Uh, and I just fascinated by that story. And again, you've done a lot of work studying them and gone out and to visit. So just, yeah, tell, tell me a little bit more about uh, that experience and what you learned from them and uh, our listeners about that story. Yeah, the monastery in uh, that we're talking about, which some uh, listeners may be familiar with, maybe they've gone on retreat there, um, and if they have not, then they, they might consider it. Um, but it's the Monastery of Christ in the Desert in northern New Mexico, um, just north of the, the town of Abiquiu. 
it is a very remote place uh, to get there. You turn off the highway and uh, kind of rumble down 13 miles of dirt road uh, to, you know, to the, to the monastery. Um, and it, it's an incredibly beautiful place. Uh, it's in this really lovely Canyon and that location, that remoteness and beauty makes it conducive to a contemplative life. But, uh, every religious community, you know, you, you can't pay the bills on contemplation. Um, every religious community needs, needs money to support itself. And so, you know, how, uh, how is this community going to support itself? And it was, at the time it was a growing community and it still is a growing community, uh, in such a remote place, they can't easily go out into the world to do, uh, remunerative labor. And so the internet seemed to offer a way to solve that dilemma. Uh, it's a way that they could stay where they are and do work that would bring in revenue. Um, and again, this was in the early days of the, the web as we know it. Um, so the, the mid 1990s. And I should add a, a quick caveat here that there's only so much about this episode that I can know. Um, you know, not, uh, you know, this, this being someone in the past, uh, and, you know, not myself, not being an insider, um, in the community, but from my research and reporting, I've learned that it, it just wasn't possible for the monks to devote the time it would take for their business to be, for their business designing web pages to be really profitable and sustainable. So the business that they, decided to do was to design web pages, it's sort of like illuminating manuscripts um, for the 20th century. And at first they got a lot of publicity. They got, um, they were, you know, on the front page of the New York Times, there were numerous magazine stories about, hey, you know, there are these monks, they live in the middle of nowhere. They're designing the internet. This is crazy. Um, and it, it seemed really promising. Like this, this really could be, um, you know, uh, a great way for the monastery to support itself. Um, but as we now know, um, tech work is extremely labor intensive. Um, Silicon Valley ha has the most intensive uh, work ethic of anywhere in the country. Um, and as I said, it just wasn't possible to devote the time it took to make the business um, uh, profitable um, over, over the long haul. And I think that the decision that the monks made um, was ultimately based on their adherence to the Benedictine rule. Um, you know, the rule has several mechanisms to keep monks from over-identifying with their work. And the biggest one of those is the liturgy of the hours. Um, you know, communal prayer is everything. You know, uh, Benedict says that monks should prefer nothing to uh, what he calls the work of God, um, by which he means uh, their communal prayer. And so they're praying seven times a day. Uh, and in order to do that, you can only work 
you know, a few hours at a time. Um, the bell rings and, and you have to stop. You have to go to the chapel to, to be with the community for the thing that is most important to you all. Additionally, you know, Benedict uh, wants his uh, monks and um, religious sisters to rotate essential duties so that they don't become a full-time dishwasher, a full-time kitchen server, a full-time reader or whatever. Uh, and he instructs the artisans of the community to practice with humility. And if they are unable to do that, then they should be removed from that duty. It's more important to be humble than to be a talented and productive worker. And as I see it, all of that, uh, again, I, I can't get into the mind of the abbot. I have, uh, you know, corresponded with him about this, but, um, uh, you know, I, I see those themes in Benedictine life um, going into the decision to, uh, to, to give up the, the web design business and to continue this search for uh, the kind of work and the kind of revenue that will not interfere with their commitment to living uh the way of life that Benedict outlines. There's a great line in your piece about uh, Christ in, in the desert uh, in Commonweal, which we can link to in the, the show notes, but which talking with a, a monk about this idea that, hey, your work's going to get stopped. And like, what if you don't finish? Yeah. Well, you get, o- you get over it, right? I mean, it just is such a, a reframing again, in which it's like, I'm going to stay and finish this and work until it's done versus like, no, you get over it because you have more important things to do. It's such like a, a different uh, approach than would be common in the states today right yeah i mean it struck me that getting over it is a spiritual discipline of the highest order uh and you know getting over our our work is is one of those things so i want to move from benedictines to jesuits so that's what we're coming from here uh we again are contemplatives in action jesuits talk about that and they're not you know in monasteries out in the world doing a huge range of really essential ministries and wonderful things. Uh, one word that I've heard a lot in Jesuit circles since starting up here uh, is magis, which is from the Latin, uh, M-A-G-I-S, magis or magis, the sense of the more, uh, doing the more for God, uh, more for the more for Christ. I think it's something that's it's very misunderstood or just understood to, differently by anyone you ask. You can have a bunch of different definitions of it. And uh, I know Jim Martin, the, uh, the the Jesuit writer, has written about uh, talking to a, an undergraduate student who said, oh, I'm really living the modest because I found the job that's going to pay me the most uh, after after graduating, which is not what it's meant. But, and I don't think it is necessarily thought of that way, even within Jesuit circles. But there's definitely like a feel of, of busyness. Uh, I think that, again, both within Jesuit world, other places, like you, you, it's a badge of honor to show kind of how busy you are. And I think something like the modest, the sense of always doing more can be used to even subconsciously justify like working to the point uh, of burnout that, you know, we have to kind of just keep doing more, 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 even though that's not uh, what uh, the word means. But it it does seem like in some ways kind of misusing that <laughs> coincides nicely with the I remember there being like that piece in the New York Times a few years ago about the busy trap, right? The sense that like we always kind of have to say uh, that we are busy uh, as much of like a social capital thing as anything to say. If if you're not busy, then something is wrong. Right. And I think that burnout can itself be a badge of honor in some circles. Um, You know, when workers 
claim uh, this term burnout. They say, oh, you know, and, and I kind of succumb to this, you know, myself sometimes um, by saying that you're, you're burned out. You're saying, I was such a devoted worker. I so adhered to the American work ethic and system of value that, um, that it destroyed me. Uh, I, I was so good. I was so devoted that now I can't even do it at all. You know, and there's the, the term that I've been using to, to talk about that lately is work martyrdom. Uh, you become a martyr to your work. There's a kind of uh, elevation uh, associated with that, that pain and that suffering. Um, and you know, um, the Jesuit tradition, of course, features many actual martyrs. Um, and, you know, many Jesuits have been called to martyrdom. Um, but if, if I can speak maybe a little bit presumptuously uh, as an outsider, uh, a layperson, um, but you're probably not called to martyrdom in your job at a high school or a hospital. Um, those are not meant to be sites of martyrdom. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, the, the American work ethic um, can often, and this is something that comes up in, in a few essays I've written, including that one on um, uh, the Benedictines in New Mexico, the American work ethic can be demonic. Uh, it can be a denial of our nature as created beings uh, who are finite. Um, and so I think that I would also, again, presumptuously, perhaps, um, if, if I may, uh, encourage uh, Jesuits who, who feel perhaps pressured to think of Magis as meaning, you know, do more with less or, um, you know, take on additional responsibility and, and make the time, like just make it work somehow. Um, or, or other kind of words of conventional wisdom from our secular working life. I, I would want to say to, to, um, to those men that, you know, this is another site for discernment, um, you know, discerning the spirits uh, of what they are demanding of themselves and what, uh, they are demanding of others and what others are demanding of them. Um, is this urge to be more like, you know, the student who says, oh, well, I got the best possible paying job. This is Magis. Um, I think that's probably not Magis. Uh, that sounds like a very conventional sort of American ethos there, um, and, which, again, can can in fact be can be demonic, can be harmful, can be a, a horrible temptation away from the things that are supposed to matter more. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I think often of, um, you know, Jesus uh, inviting the disciples to consider the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Um, they actually are not being called to be more than God has made them to be. Um, and yet 
you know, God, God loves them and dignifies them. Um, and there, there are perhaps ways of thinking of Majus that are in alignment with the limitations uh, of being a creature of God. And there are probably ways of thinking about it that are, you know, out of alignment with that. Um, again, I, I, <laughs> I say all of this and I feel, you know, who am I to, um, uh, tell, uh, people in the Jesuit world, uh, how to live Jesuit values. But, um, those are the, you know, the thoughts that occur to me to address perhaps some misunderstandings of that concept. I mean, and I see your work as really kind of shining a light on the insanity of some of our, again, unspoken values around work. But, uh, and you pulled back, as you said, and, and left what had been a dream job for you. But it's not like you're pulling back to say, like, we do nothing. The Benedictines don't do nothing. That's aura et labora, right? They, they do work. You, you write a lot. You're working on a book. How have things changed for you? You're still, again, producing things. Not like you have curled up and, and, and stopped entirely. Um, how is your relationship with work different now, kind of since you made that, that pullback? You're still, again, as you are producing stuff. Yeah. Uh, I will say, I will admit that I preach this way better than I practice it. Um, I... I, I, I want to be more like uh, the Benedictines who recognize what is the most important, what is holy, what is sacred, what is uh, the most important thing in their life um, and order my life around that. Um, I'm, I'm not really there yet. I'm, I'm definitely on the way. That said, um, I, I, I think that I have a, a less obsessive approach to my work now than I did when I was doing um, what I considered to be my dream job. Um, I, I know that I'm not burned out. I know that I'm much happier and healthier. Um, and uh, that, that may be partly that I, I don't work in an institution anymore. Well, I mean, I teach part-time at a local university, um, but there, no one is telling me um, or, or kind of encouraging me to, to take on additional responsibilities. I mean, I, I know what I'm capable of and I, I kind of limit myself to that. Um, and, you know, I, I try to recognize when I've done enough um, and to, to feel confidence in that. One of the things you are working on that we've mentioned is, is this book uh, through the University of California Press uh, about these themes. As you've been working on that, um, even more recently than some of these articles that you've written, what are, what are some of the topics that you're kind of wrestling with now or exploring or have really piqued your interest, uh, even in the, the past couple of weeks or months? Yeah. So I'm, the book is, um, which again, yeah, I'm, I'm very much still in the process of writing it. Um, listeners should not. Uh, rush out to try to to find it just yet, but it's meant to to look at burnout uh, as a a culture wide problem, um, and you know the first step is to get a really good, really solid definition of it. Um, you know through seeing how psychologists talk about burnout, um, but then to see how our cultural ideals. 
um, for our expectations of what work is supposed to be don't match up with the reality of our work. And that is, I think, often true at all income levels and all levels of status. Um, people who work, well, I mean, we can look at physicians, for example, or have extremely, you know, extremely high status positions and an extremely high rate of burnout compared to a lot of other professions. Um, you know, they have the highest ideals uh, for work and the highest expectations of themselves. And we, their patients, expect, uh, have, have high, high ideals uh, for them too. And I don't know that, you know, those, those ideals are really difficult to fulfill, um, you know, particularly in an era of, you know, hospital consolidation and uh, ever more kind of pressure on hospitals to uh, increase revenue. You know, doctors are, they are stretched between their ideals and their reality. Um, and I think that there are, um, there are both economic and cultural reasons for that. And that's, that's part of what I explore in the book. Uh, that, you know, again, is, is very much in process. Uh, and what I want to find uh, by the end of the book are, well, what should our ideals be for, for work, first of all? Um, generally, I think they should be a little lower. We should probably not expect work to fulfill us. Um, we should expect other things to fulfill us. And I'm also looking for... Um, you know, what, what other ways of living are there? Um, what other embodied practices can keep work in a, a limited place in our lives, not quite at the center of our lives, maybe just off to the center, supporting those things that are, are more important. Um, and, you know, Benedictine communities is one area that I'm looking one of your pieces you wrote for the New Republic, again, a secular publication kind of hints and gets that specifically, but then also tries to make open to anyone is maybe the concept of, of Sabbath, the sense that maybe we have these things from tradition, things that we can kind of reclaim these times set aside uh, to withdraw from work. And kind of uh, your piece, I think, was headlined, How to Save Americans from the Hell of Work. Uh, so kind of you start to propose at least to get at some potential solution. So what, what are some of those ways you think that we can kind of... Uh, stop the way we're going and change course. Yeah. Uh, and I take a lot of inspiration uh, in that piece and throughout everything that I write uh, from Joseph Pieper's book, uh, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Um, the The students who I'm teaching right now at, at this very week are reading that book. Hopefully some of them are reading it as we are recording. Um, at least they're supposed to. That's their homework. Um, and Pieper makes this argument that leisure, um, the highest form of which he believes is worship, should be the thing at the center of our life. And work is the thing at the periphery that makes it possible um, for us to spend time in uh, leisure and in worship. Uh, and, you know, so the, 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 the most kind of fundamental thing that we can do is to identify what is sacred. Um, we need to make 
something sacred, um, you know, for uh, Catholics, that's easy. Uh, we know what's sacred. Uh, in the secular world, you know, there we people can identify things that are maybe, you know, small s sacred, perhaps. Um, but something needs to be sacred so that work can be the profane activity that it's meant to be. Um, I think the way that that plays out, you know, there are policies uh, that we could enact uh, on a, a national or local level. You know, things like more paid time off uh, for uh, workers. Um, you know, a policy like that could normalize spending time away from work. That it is normal for someone to actually take two complete weeks of vacation. Um, we could shorten the standard work week from you know forty or thirty-five or whatever hours to thirty, uh, from five days to four. Um, we could eliminate required overtime for some workers uh, at universities. You know where I have worked for most of my uh, career. Universities could hire more full-time faculty so that the small number of faculty who are there aren't burdened with more and more um, uh, work. But beyond policies, um, I think that we could change um, cultures of our workplaces. Uh, it could, you know, for instance, um, we could work, you know, employers could work with their IT departments to make it that if you send an email at 9 p.m., it doesn't get to that person until eight the next morning. Um, this is possible. Email does not have to be instantaneous. And we don't have to expect that the one obsessive person who likes sending late night emails gets to set the tone for the rest of the organization. Um, you know, so that would be um, something that, that workplaces could do to send the message that, you know, they're certain times are sacred. Weekends are sacred to us. Um, the time between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m., say, is sacred when work is not to be done. And I think even more than that, um, there would have to be a, we, we need a, we need a moral shift. Um, we need to see that the dignity of the person is greater than the dignity of work and the dignity of themselves as a worker. Um, and again, this is just uh, following, you know, what what the popes have written in the social encyclicals, and goes goes as far back as Genesis. Human beings have inherent dignity, um, and that means for when it comes to work, that our workplaces need to be built around that dignity um, and not uh, making the the, the person. Um, conform to whatever demands for profit uh, or productivity. Companies need profit, they need productivity, but um, it can't come at the expense of human dignity. Yeah, I remember hearing a, a story a couple of years ago, I think about maybe a company in England or something where you went on vacation and the auto reply back to the sender of the email was, um, I'm not going to get this email, like it's going to be deleted. So find someone else uh, to 
talk to or talk to me when I'm back. <laughs> I think they become this policy that you can't, so you wouldn't come back to the to the empty or to the full inbox. I know that they've done some studies that people on vacation are actually not as happy as they are the week before vacation when they're looking forward to it. Because when you're on the vacation, then you're just dreading like what you're going back to, including the the full inbox. So there are some things. They are doing a lot actually here at the Jesuit conference, right? It took great value on, on this, trying to, to make sure we keep these things uh, at the center. Uh, which which is great. Which included here for me. I just I'm coming off of a, they have a paternity leave, paid paternity leave and maternity leave. So we just had our third kid, um, and I was able to kind of be home and really not checking in at all, which was super helpful. You also have a piece about parenting, and I think sometimes we do we think about parenting as work. Right now, I feel like I have no time for leisure. I want to go talk to Joseph Peeper and see if he ever had three kids uh, under five at the same time. Uh, I don't think he did. So um, yeah. So what what. What uh, we've kind of used the work language around parenting, and it does feel like a lot of work, right? And I'm quick to say that when people ask, you know, how it's going, oh, it's a lot of work. Um, wh- what talk about that piece a little bit, and and why maybe our using our language of work around parenting is is not the best idea? Yeah, um, yeah, that piece was from a couple of years ago, again in the New Republic, and it was a uh, the, the the point of departure there was a provocative and and I thought really excellent article by the novelist uh, Karen Rinaldi about about exactly that uh, that notion that parenting is the hardest job in the world um, another major caveat I am not a parent um, any parents who are listening are free to um, you know, call me names if I am, seem totally out of touch here. But um, yeah, I think that the the language of work has really seeped into parenting, and I think it's distorting. Um, the language of work has also seeped into how we talk about schooling um, and marriage, and even death. We talk about you know working at death uh, or working at grief. Um, and it, it's, I think that, that the language of work can distort these human activities and make us think in terms of, well, you know, how can we do this more efficiently? How can we grieve more efficiently? How can we get students to become educated, you know, more efficiently? Um, the idea of work martyrdom that, I was talking about earlier also can come into play. Um, it can be a, become a badge of honor for students to really overdo it in their education, to take on too many extracurricular activities um, or for parents to take on too much and to think that they need to be, you know, martyrs to their children. Um, and, you know, or, or again, you know, um, how can I, uh, face my own death in a more efficient and effective and productive way. Well, there, there's no way to do that. Um, and, you know, I, I think that uh, Peeper is, is really helpful here in getting us to realize that our society has no really good way to talk about meritorious activity that isn't work. Um, you know, what is the value of school? We have a hard time explaining that. Um, 
because we can't think beyond work as a system of value. And so we say, well, you know, kids, school is basically your job. Um, or, you know, what is the, ver- the value of marriage? What makes marriage worthwhile? Well, it's hard work. That's what makes it worthwhile. Um, or, you know, what, what makes for a good parent? A good parent is a hardworking parent. You know, I, that may not be entirely true. Um, there may be aspects of all of these things that don't look like work, but are nevertheless meritorious. And um, I, I hope that we can expand our moral language uh, so that we don't just have to reduce everything to work. Because when you do that, then all of this inhuman and potentially demonic language, I think, comes in uh, as well. Well, I'm going to start trying to do that with my wife and our three. I'll sit them down tonight and say, look, we're not talking about this family as a workplace anymore, uh, despite uh, the challenges that come with it. But the, again, the great choice. Well, John Molesic, this has been a great joy. Thank you so much for spending some time to ch- chat with us about uh, about work and ways we might kind of rethink our, our obsession with it. Uh, is there anywhere they can people can find you if they want to track down any more uh, of your work or, or see you online? Yes. Uh, yeah, I have a website, uh, johnmolesic.com. That's J-O-N-M-A-L-E-S-I-C.com. Um, and I encourage people especially to sign up for my newsletter where I, you know, update uh, subscribers on what I'm writing about, what I'm thinking, what I'm reading. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll get all the news that they, they need about the book in progress there. Great. Well, thanks so much, John, and uh, look forward to seeing that book when it comes out. Yeah, thank you for having me. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan-Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. (laughs) ¶¶